Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. And we're here to answer the question, why do we do what we do? So Tim, I have a question for you. Okay. What is your experience in working with clients around incentive programs with using loss contracts or clawback incentive programs where you pay people upfront and you take that money back if they don't meet the agreed upon performance measures? Kurt, I don't have any experience with that. No. You don't have any experience with those. Why? I became aware of the concept about 10 years ago. Uh, George Lowenstein wrote a paper on it, and I was fascinated by testing it in the field. And so over the course of several years, I brought the idea to sales VPs and asked them, what would you think about trying this, even with just a small group of people? And they all said no, every single one of them. Why do you think that was? That's a good question. I'm not really 100% sure, but I'm guessing that a good part of it was status quo bias. This is the way we've always done things. And you're not going to just move our cheese on this. And the second might just have been cultural, uh, that they really just felt like, um, you know, we, we have a culture that's built around these, these uh, gains at the end and not with the clawbacks. And the third might have just been nobody wanted to be the guinea pig. Okay. So nobody wanted to be the guinea pig on this project. Not at all. However, things might be changing. And our guest, Alex Emus, has some things to say about that. But before we hear about what Alex has to say, let's first hear about who Alex Emus is. Alex is an assistant professor of economics in the social and decision sciences department at Carnegie Mellon's Dietrich College. His research dovetails perfectly into the department's cross-disciplinary approach by blending behavioral and experimental economics, particularly how social concerns and emotions influence decision-making and preferences. His most current research examines the effectiveness of pro-social incentive schemes and how subtle changes in social norms can have large effects on behavior. But that's not where we started. We started our conversation with Alex discussing his findings with Sally Sadoff from the University of California in San Diego on the effectiveness of loss contracts that Kurt mentioned a moment ago. With that, please sit back and enjoy our conversation with Alex Emus. Welcome, Alex Emus, to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here, and I'm excited for the conversation. Good. Right. We, we are. We are too. We're going to start with a little speed round. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. No contest. <laughs> I I dislike tea. Well, there oh, you go. Wow. That makes it that makes it relatively easy. Okay. Uh, travel with an itinerary or no itinerary. No itinerary. All right. Okay. Uh, Life without a laptop or life without a mobile phone? Laptop. (laughs) There was was some contemplation. Okay. (laughs) All right. With incentives, should you pay the incentive before the performance occurs with a clawback, i.e. a loss contract, or based uh, afterwards, based on performance? Depends. <laughs> the good. No, that's that's an important question. I mean, that's what I'm doing research on. It really does. So, so uh, yeah, help us understand that a little bit because you have been doing some really interesting research on that. So help yeah. us understand that that question, but also some of the other insights that you've been gaining from that research. Yeah. So, I mean, the first paper that uh, I wrote with uh, Sally Sadoff and Anya Samek um, looked at whether people prefer loss versus gain contracts 
So these kind of clawback contracts versus uh, versus contracts where if you work above a certain threshold, you get the money at the very end. Um, and essentially what we found surprisingly was that people seem to prefer uh, the loss contracts and these contracts ended up leading them to work harder. Uh, and we weren't the only ones who found this. So John DeQuitt has an excellent paper in the Journal of uh, the European Economic Association that shows the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, so it does seem to be relatively robust and other people have found this. Uh, and prior to us, people have argued that people work harder under clawback contracts and showed it in some uh, uh, lab and field studies. Um, so what was unique to our project was showing that people actually prefer this because if you take a standard model of loss aversion, people should prefer the standard sort of gain contract exactly. where you get the money at the end. And our argument, and I'm not sure that we were able to really nail it in the paper, uh, was that it was choosing the loss contract was a sort of commitment device that people made for themselves. They thought that, you know, once I start working on this thing, I'm going to start shirking a little bit. And, the and I'm not going to be really able to get this prize that I really want. So what I'm going to do is... Uh, choose the loss contract, despite the fact that I really hate losing, knowing that the fact that I hate losing is going to make me work harder. That, and this this requires a bit of sophistication. And we have some evidence in the paper suggesting that this seemed like what people are doing in the sense that, you know, they people who had higher loss aversion coefficients, which we elicited from them, were more likely to choose these contracts. Um, so that was the paper we wrote. Uh, but afterwards, people, uh, as science progresses, uh, ended up following up on this sort of work. And I'd say the newest really exciting paper is also by Sally Sadoff with her co-author Andy Brownback, looking at loss, uh, loss contracts with uh, community college teachers. Okay. Um, and basically what they did is community college uh, teachers has been kind of like a really underexplored area in education. So there's incentives for high school teachers. There's instead of incentives for students. Uh, but community colleges are basically the backbone of mobility in this country, right? So uh, a poor person, a person who doesn't really have a lot of exposure to the higher education system, enters a community college, sees that they like it, and transfer to a four-year college and continue with this, their career. There's, this has been relatively underexplored. So what they did is they uh, they gave uh, college uh, uh, these community college teachers um, uh, these sorts of contracts, and they found that uh, they were really effective. Uh, the, the students did much better, uh, and um, uh, yeah. So that, uh, that's the really, contracts were effective. It's really fascinating, as Kurt mentioned. Kurt and I do a lot of work in the world of incentives, and this mm -hmm. is a conversation that I've had with George for years about actually doing field tests in the world of sales. And uh, mm. when I've never been able to get a client to agree to it, you know, most clients back out at the last minute and say, no, 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 our, our corporate culture is all about the gains and not about, about loss contracts. Yeah. So this is changing. So, um, so again, so you have this, uh, this experiment that they, uh, Sally and Andy ran, but then there's um, a, uh, a re very recent paper uh, looking at loss contracts, which is why I'm saying that this is more complicated, looking at loss contracts as incentives for car salesmen. And this was done not in one dealership. This was done in a whole set of dealerships for a car company. They're not allowed to reveal which car company, but it's one of the big ones. Yep. Uh, so this was done on a mass scale. And these clawback contracts ended up completely backfiring. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. 
completely backfiring. Yeah. I mean, so so the reason I say it's complicated is because it's super parameter dependent. A, are these repeated interactions or is it a one-shot thing? B, where do you set the threshold? So for example, what, uh, what people, uh, there, there's a follow-up paper to our work, changing the thresholds. And what they found is that if the threshold's super high, basically you get kind of like a what the hell effect, like the loss contract completely backfires because people are so discouraged. Yeah. They just don't end up not working uh, at all. Whereas with gain contracts, they're kind of less worried about it. It feels like a more positive contract. So they end up putting in uh, a bit more extra effort. Um, in the case with the car dealerships, what ended up happening is they just basically were pretty motivated by these clawback contracts, but motivated in a bad way. They started cheating and mm. uh, kind of substituting the raw the the models that are less profitable for the companies just in order to get these numbers up. So you have to think about all of these things when doing this. And the paper that Sally and Andy have with the community college teachers, they actually find that uh, these teachers prefer game contracts. Okay. But after having some experience with these contracts, they start going in the direction of preferring lost contracts. Wow. Because again, this is a repeated interaction. And with repeated interactions, um, these things, uh, you know, these things become a lot more complicated if, because with repeated interactions, a lot of people end up losing with these lost contracts. And if they really, really hate it, they might not come back. Right. So these are things that you really have to take into account. Whereas with the gain contract, you might not get the gain, but because of loss aversion, you feel less bad yeah. than if you have the loss contract that end up losing. Yeah. So you have to take take into account the whole repeated nature of the uh, of the exercise. Yeah, it's fascinating as you're talking about that. Just in in the work that both Tim and I do is the nuances that all of these incentives often have within the culture, mm-hmm. based upon again the culture that they're they've been brought up in. Uh, we're working on it with a client right now where uh, it's a travel incentive and they had to change some of the parameters on it. And we're getting a whole bunch of pushback because they're comparing it to uh, the previous one, which was more lucrative, mm-hmm. various different pieces, yeah. even though this one's really nice, but it's this comparison that says, they're Oh, anchored. so now that becomes it's it's while they're earning this wonderful trip, it's kind of a loss because it, they're comparing it to what was up there before. Right. And it, it feels not as, as, you know, wonderful. So, and this, this is, there's this whole literature in psychology about joint versus separate evaluation. Yeah. So for example, in our work, in my paper with Sally and Anya, we had, um, we had a between subject design. So people indicated their willingness to pay for one of these contracts, but it, they didn't know that the game contract was out there when they were evaluating the loss contract. Whereas in Sally's paper with Andy, it was a joint comparison, yeah, which completely changes the psychology. Very much. Um, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of these things matter, and uh, I'm really glad that people are following up on this. I have a paper with Brian Hall and David uh, uh, David Martin at uh, HBS looking at um, whether managers are aware, aware of these uh, sorts of factors. So, for example, if a manager is with a uh, is interacting with a, an employee uh, in a one-shot interaction versus a repeated interaction, are they going to be more likely to assign a loss contract versus a game contract? Which contracts are going to be more effective in a repeated versus one-shot interaction? Uh, we're just starting to get these things off the ground. We have a pilot that has some uh, suggestively positive results saying that you know managers are aware of these things and they're more likely to give a loss contract when they're just interacting once. Yep. Um, but you know, more research is needed. You sound optimistic, though, that this could be a, a, an emerging trend. 
Yeah, I mean, um, I am optimistic. I'm op- I'm particularly optimistic from uh, seeing Sally and Andy's paper, uh, seeing that teachers who have experience with these contracts become more likely to choose them. So they're learning about the fact potentially that they're better at motivating them to work harder and that's potentially not so aversive to actually end up losing. Um, and the, the, the thing that I w- that made me pessimistic in the past is to say, you know, some nefarious manager is going to use these things to motivate employees mm-hmm. while, while making them very unhappy in the process. Exactly. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, I don't, that that's not an appealing situation for me. And I hope that that would, that wouldn't be the case. And now I'm becoming more optimistic seeing these sorts of results come out. That's well, very cool. Alex. So obviously you're working in this line of research. Is there other new research that you're working on? Anything that is exciting and new groundbreaking fun stuff for you? Yeah. So now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of focusing on, on two different, fairly different, um, fairly different streams of research. One has to do with discrimination. Um, so I just uh, published a paper with Aislinn Boren and Michael Rosenberg on the dynamics of discrimination. So the a lot of the discrimination work in the past has been looking at static settings. So for example, um, you know, sending out a bunch of resumes, changing the type of name that's on the resume and seeing that there's a different in call, difference in callbacks. But the question is, how does that discrimination uh, affect discrimination down the road? So for example, a person is invited to an interview if a manager is aware of discrimination earlier in the process, they should update about the fact that this person's sitting in front of them. Uh, so for example, if a particular member of a minority group faces a higher threshold, if they're at the interview, that means that they produced a higher signal initially. So discrimination should get smaller and smaller oh. and potentially even reverse uh, in, at, some po- at some point in the process. So that's that's a paper that uh, Aislinn, uh, Michael and I wrote um, uh, running a field experiment on a big uh, online platform where we could actually manipulate the dynamic element separately from the identity of the user. And we found that uh, there's support for these dyna- for these dynamic effects uh, where in the sense that early discrimination against a particular group actually reverses later on. Uh, and th- we show theoretically that this says that the initial discrimination was actually biased in the sense that people had incorrect beliefs and so there's a lot of scope for policy. Um, so we're doing a bunch of follow-up work with that, uh, on that, which we're, I'm pretty excited about. But before, um, before you go on to the second one, can you just uh, fill out, you, you just kind of teased my uh, curiosity with this sure. uh, bias versus uh, that there's biases that can be changed through policy or context. Uh, yeah. Can, can you talk just a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course. So in economics, um, discrimination is typically kind of classified into two very, very, very big bins. Uh, there's this taste-based discrimination, which is something that Gary Becker talked about all the way back in the 50s, which is this idea that uh, people have some preference against interacting with members of a certain group, and this enters it directly into their utility function. So they just dislike pe- certain types of people, and this generates discrimination. But then a different sort of discrimination is belief-based in the sense that I have nothing against members of a particular group, but I don't know how hard a person is going to work before I actually hire them. And I have some sort of beliefs that members of a certain group are less productive, less able to do a particular job than others. And so when I'm in this uncertain environment, I draw on these population-level beliefs when making a decision of who to hire. So if I think 
you know, uh, particular people, uh, you know, women are less able to code or something like that, that I'm less likely to hire women for a particular job. Uh, but these two broad bins of discrimination are very different from a policy perspective, particularly if it's belief-based discrimination, these beliefs could be wrong. Like I could be wrong about the fact that some groups are worse than others. And this, because these beliefs are not driven by my preferences, I just don't have the information, there's scope for providing this information to people. And that's where this bias part enters. What I mean by bias is that beliefs are wrong. And what we show theoretically in this paper is that looking at dynamic patterns of discrimination, you can actually identify whether whether it's belief-based discrimination first, and two, if this belief-based discrimination is driven by incorrect beliefs. Because what we show mathematically in the theoretical model is that if you see a reversal, that actually says beliefs are wrong, that the initial discrimination is driven by some, some members in the population, some evaluators who are driving that initial discrimination having incorrect beliefs. Otherwise, discrimination would just get smaller, but never reverse. So we think that this is a pretty powerful tool to identify bias, which introduces the scope of policy where you give people information, uh, have training or and, and, and levers like that in order to uh, in order to correct it. That is really fascinating. Is. I, I, the the component of that reversal and the, the way that you can mathematically look at that, I think, is very uh, impactful. Obviously, for long term policy and other things. That's so, super cool. Okay, so, so you mentioned there was a second uh, new line of inquiry that you're you're focused on. Yeah, so I'm 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 really interested um, in um, looking at. Uh, financial markets and individual decision-making in, in financial markets, particularly, this is a field in behavioral economics called behavioral science, behavioral finance. Uh, this is one of the, mo the most successful parts of behavioral economics in some ways, generally because of the uh, data availability. And things that I'm really interested in, in looking at is basically um, uh, individual decision-making in these markets, particularly uh, how regulation and interventions can potentially improve people's interaction with financial markets uh, in the sense of, you know, one of my heroes is Jack Bogle, who kind of developed index funds yep. and democratized financial markets because everyday people did not have access to financial markets. Uh, and all of the rents from the stock market were basically uh, allocated to the very few people who were actively involved in them, and the invention of index funds kind of opened the door. So, and but but we still have a lot of work to do as far as uh, allowing people, uh, as far as getting people to interact with financial markets. Most of the population does not own an index fund. Um, a lot of the population doesn't have a four hundred one k. And so, when you have when you see these stock market returns in the news, some people are benefiting from them, but most people are not. And uh, doing research into what what are the barriers of entry, uh, what are the what are the steps, uh, what what's the scope for policy in order to in order to allow people to interact with these financial markets better and in a smarter way? Uh, I think there's there's a lot of work to do. Just you know, off the off the cuff, just the the fact that when you do see people interacting with financial markets, they're owning ten individual stocks. Right, mm. which is also not great. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you're. It's better than owning nothing uh, in a lot of ways, but it's it's worse than owning an index fund. And yeah, like that. well, so. it's interesting. You know, you you use the word better. Uh, 
some of the conversations Kurt and I have are about the ethics of, of using mm-hmm. behavioral interventions, uh, mm-hmm. and that there's sort of a moral code underneath some of the, uh, some of these interventions, some of these policies that assume that we're going to be acting in in the better, you know, to improve uh, decision making so that people you know, don't act in their worst self-interest. They were act in their best mm-hmm. self-interest. Um, but it kind of brings, it, it, it just always brings up this question of, you know, how do we measure what's better? Especially when you're talking about a, a portion of the population that is uh, relatively small. Um, I mean, how, when you, when you think about these, these people who are going to be impacted by these regulations when it comes to index funds or 401ks and uh, that sort of thing, is it, are there broad scale uh, implications, uh, you know, to this with large portions of the population, or do you feel like this is a relatively smallish group? Um, so I, I have a feeling that it's a, it's a relatively large group of people who can benefit from uh, investing in index funds. And I'm, I'm, you know, again, I'm not talking about getting people to day trade. That's definitely not yeah. what I'm talking about. Okay, uh, that would certainly be uh, for a lot of people, especially if they're exiting. Uh, after short and medium run kind of horizons, uh, that would certainly not be a positive thing to get people to, to day trade for six months and then leave yeah. uh, because probably they'd lose money. Uh, but getting people involved in financial markets, I think broadly is, um, you know, you can look at the historical returns from stock markets and they're, they're yeah. very large. So if you get, can get people involved and invest over 30, 40 year horizons, they're going to have a lot of money, a lot more money when they retire. We, we interviewed Barry Ritholtz, um, you know, has Ritholtz. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. it was very interesting. One of the components that he says, one of his litmus tests for his clients is he said, look, you can't go in and check your balance every day. We'll, we'll, yeah, give, you, yeah, we'll give you a little, you can have play money that you want to go and take it, but the vast majority of your investments, we're going to keep in there for a long time because every little market dip or, or rise mm-hmm. and you want to make changes to it, it, it actually is, is detrimental to your long-term success. And so that's what I'm hearing you say as well on, on the. Yeah, for sure. So this is based on this myopic loss aversion idea yeah. uh, that uh, Richard Thaler and others have, you know, they wrote a paper in 95 and there were some follow-up papers afterwards by, including by your and Jan Potters. Uh, this idea that if you check your portfolio frequently, you get hit by loss aversion uh, every single time you lose. And obviously you see the gains too, but because you feel the loss is relatively more than uh, than the gains, you're more likely to exit if you check it a lot. Whereas if you say, you know, check your portfolio every, every year, every three years, most of the time you're seeing gains. Yeah. And that better. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you're gonna you're gonna be more willing to engage with those markets, and you're gonna be uh, you're gonna end up taking advantage of these high returns of from equity markets over a 30, 40 year period if you right. don't check your investments. Well, and we also talked with with your colleague Sarab, right? And he was doing mm-hmm. some research on four hundred one k and getting people to uh, not only um, participate in their four hundred one k, but but participate up to like a company match and looking at some of that mm-hmm. research and the interesting that ten dollar gift card had uh, to go check your balance actually had a more significant yeah. impact on people participating than many of the other interventions that they tried. So, what are some of the things that you are looking at to try to get people to get involved with? these markets, whether it be 401k or index funds or, or whatever it would be? Um, so one thing that, I, that um, uh, I'm looking at now with, uh, together with Abby Sussman uh, and um, 
uh, and some some co-authors is the idea that some members, uh, some people who systematically don't engage with financial markets may be underconfident about their ability to participate in them because it's, you know, uh, a lot of people think that these things are scary and, you know, there's losses and, you know, the things that the media covers are the dips and like the fluctuations and the volatility, the media doesn't cover the fact that over a 30 year period, there were these huge returns. You don't see a news story about this. Yeah. So what we're doing is, um, is looking at people's, uh, at how you can basically, uh, get people to, um, I don't want to say I have the, the right amount of confidence because, you know, I don't know what that is, but to certainly not be underconfident, uh, when, trying to interact with financial markets because there's this idea in economics about extensive and intensive margin decisions. So intensive margin says, all right, I'm already in the financial market. How do I trade? Am I aggressive? Am I not aggressive? Okay. Extensive margin means, do I enter financial markets in the first place? And a lot of the research has been on intensive margin decisions, which is basically like, I observe you in the financial market. I observe you trading. And a lot of the research there has showed that people are overconfident because they trade too much. They're really aggressive. But though that's only a subset of the population that chose to get a brokerage account. The vast majority of people don't have a brokerage account. Why don't they have a brokerage account? Why aren't they choosing index funds? And what we conjecture is because they're underconfident. Got it. Is because they think that these things are scary, that these things are going to lead to big losses, that it's going to kind of like a casino. And the approach that we're taking is to look at what factors lead to this underconfidence and potentially how we can correct this underconfidence. Because again, from, you know, we just talked about the ethicality of this right. and uh, of these sorts of policies. I think this is extremely important. That's why it's important to identify, uh, it's important to say what better means or, you know, uh, or improving, what does improving mean? So it's important to have a benchmark that we can kind of, we can all agree on. So um, correct beliefs, for example, in the discrimination context is something that everybody can probably agree on is a good benchmark is to not be incorrect, right? Is to not be discriminating because you think a group is worse than a different group, and you're actually not even right. Yeah. Right. That everybody can agree. We should correct that belief. Mm -hmm. uh, so in financial markets, I think there, there, there's scope for this, these sorts of benchmarks as well, where you can say that this group is underconfident. They, they, they don't have enough information about what financial markets are, and therefore they, they're, they're, they're not willing to engage with them. So correcting that sort of belief that, that, that sort of uh, getting them properly calibrated. Uh, as I think a uh, fruitful direction for research. And where does risk aversion uh, come into this as well? Is this? It, it seems like risk aversion would be part and parcel to this lack of confidence. Yeah. So that that's that that's a whole thing. <laughs> I, I can talk about that for for an entire podcast. Okay. So uh, so risk aversion is part of preferences. Uh, so risk and risk aversion can be uh, decomposed into. Uh, several different features. So risk aversion, you observe me turning down a lottery, you can say, why am I turning down the lottery? Well, one reason is because I'm loss averse, which is called first order risk aversion. Another reason is because of the concavity of my utility function, which is typically how standard economics uh, uh, measure, uh, measure, uh, measures risk aversion. And the first is, by the way, a bias. The second one is not. Oh, The second one just is these are my preferences. Yeah. So it's your loss aversion is a bias. Your utility function. I, I get more value out of this versus maybe Tim does. So 
Yeah, and almost nobody would want to say, look, look, we want to correct that. Yeah. Because that's just, that's like saying like, look, you like apples, I like oranges, I'm going to force you to eat oranges, right? Yeah. That, that nobody would want to do that. No. The thing that, that I think people have, people think that in some ways their scope for policy is uh, things like incorrect beliefs about risk. Like for example, in financial markets, I can be pretty risk tolerant, but I think that there's, the financial market is just you know, you know, I put in $10 and with like a 40% chance, I'm going to lose everything. Uh, if I have those incorrect beliefs, then I'm not going to invest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the, it, it's not about risk aversion. It's just about correcting my beliefs because I'm looking at the media and I'm the first thing I think of is the financial crisis rather than the 40 years preceding the financial. Crisis. Exactly. We are going to need another whole podcast. On it. <laughs> I, I totally dig it. I think that's, that sounds very cool actually. All right. Okay. Uh, well, I, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your most underappreciated stuff. You know, you, uh, you have mentioned that maybe uh, a paper is like a piece of art and if you put it out there and it's not, you know, adored that, you know, maybe you just move on. But are there some things that, that, that you've worked on in the past? You're like, oh man, this is such a nugget. I, I want somebody to take another look at that picture because I think they didn't really look at it right the first time. <laughs> and now they might appreciate it upon second glance. I have a really hard time with this question. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, I don't even know what that means that it's underappreciated just because like for me, I, I think there's, people with legitimate qualms about some piece of research that they think is underappreciated. Right. I really can't, you know, and it's some, some of my research is more well-cited and more well-received than others, but I don't know. Like, uh, (laughs) yes, sir. Sure. I wish every single one of my papers had a thousand sites. That would be amazing. Uh, But you know, the, yeah, I have a really hard time with that. That's okay. A, all right. That's okay. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, you know, it's a good level set for, for us. So, well, then, then how about if we talk about music? Uh, that's, that's great. To go I could talk. Music. This is where I check out. So. <laughs> no, it's not. It is not. Um, music, important role in your life. It's, it's been there at some major life decisions. How does music play a role in these major life decisions? Um, so I'd say that growing up, uh, I wasn't really, you know, through like the middle of high school, I wasn't particularly into music um, just because, you know, I'm an Im- I, I was an immigrant from Eastern Europe. I didn't know English for a long part of my life while living in America. Uh, you know, I just lot of different influences but once i found music and could connect with music i mean it was just huge like uh so i would say that at the end of college towards the middle of college you know i I read this book called please kill me uh by uh um by a few people who were in the uh in in the punk music scene in, in in new york in the 60s and 70s they were these journalists uh, and I mean, that book just completely changed my life because it's all about the fact that you can, you can do whatever you want, right? You just need to put in the effort into it. Like a lot of these musicians didn't know how to play the instruments. They just said like, look, I want to create something special. Wow. Uh, and then they got together with their friends and then they did it. Like the Ramones, they just, 
those guys just walked around the houses and said, you know, I, I do you know how to play this? No. Well, do you want to learn? Let's get a gig. <laughs> wow. Let's play at this bar. Let's get a band together. Let's make something special. And, and these bands did make something special. They created a movement. They created an aesthetic. They created a, uh, you know, they, they changed a lot of people's lives. So when I was reading this book, I was having a party at my house, like, you know, uh, a week later. And I walked around and I said, I walked around and said, do you want to be in a band? Uh, I didn't know how to play an instrument. Uh, and I said, I'll be the guitarist. And then I found a guy who played violin, but he wanted to play bass. And I found another guy who never played drums, but he'll play drums. And, you know, we got, we bought all these instruments, unboxed them. We put us, put it together in my bedroom, started playing. And then we're like, how are we going to get, get ourselves to practice? Why don't we get a commitment device? Okay. Practice. <laughs> Even then you're using behavior. Why don't we get a commitment device? So what's a great commitment device for a band to practice? A gig. A gig in public. <laughs> so there were two bars in Chicago that did not need a demo cassette <laughs> to book a gig. Very they were called, actor. <laughs> I called one of them, called the Mutiny. I believe it just closed down, unfortunately. And we got a gig a month later. And we were terrible. We were, we were horrible. You know, we, we still did not know how to, you can't learn how to play instruments in a month. Uh, but, you know, we kept at it and we, we kept doing it. And this kind of music, you know, getting into going from punk music to more folk music. I was listening to a lot of Bob Dylan towards the end of high school, sorry, the end of college. I said, you know, not quite sure what I want to do. Bob Dylan moved to New York. I'm going to move to New York. So I moved to New York. <laughs> and I got a job and I, I looked around, I, I, I started a company when I was out there, uh, and then kind of like listening to music, like getting into this, depending on what I was listening to really affected what sort of directions I was looking at, what interests I was pursuing. And eventually, um, you know, I found, I found economics and it really, it was on a drive across the country. I was listening to music and I was listening to podcasts I heard a behavioral economist and that really connected to me. And I said, you know, I was in a particular type of mood and I said, maybe I should pursue this. Okay. First, first an observation, the fact that you knew that there were only two clubs in the entire city of Chicago that would, would take a, you know, a new band without a cassette tape is fascinating. I just, <laughs> I just love that. I called a lot of clubs. This was, <laughs> This was a, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a process to find them. There were two. There were two. That's fascinating. We played both of them. Okay, so right now, what's uh, do you have a, a go-to playlist that? Uh, what what's on your current rotation of new music? What what's what's flying through your your playlist right now? Um, so I I'm really into. Um, so as far as so the you know I typically listen to some folk indie and then hip hop. And as far as what's on my playlist is uh, there's this artist called uh, named uh, Phoebe Bridgers, um, who's, uh, you know, I saw her opening up for bright eyes a few years ago. Okay. She was incredible. And then I saw that she released a, 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 an album a year ago. And so I've been kind of following her. She's got this incredible voice, great lyrics. Um, Mitski is great. Uh, so she's another one of these kind of 
very kind of liter- literate, uh, um, metaphorical lyrics, but has this punk rock edge. Um, Soccer Mommy had a really great album last year. Uh, Boy Genius, which is a super group mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yep. between Phoebe Bridgers and a few other artists. Um, yeah, so I've been really into uh, I've been really into that uh, into those. So that's kind of when I'm calming down or you know driving or something like that. But you know when I'm working out, I'm usually listening to something like Future, or Run the Jewels, or uh, Cardi B stuff like that more on the hip-hop side so alex when we've asked this question a couple different um interviewees do you listen to music when you're actually working do you use music to do that or do you need it quiet this is the biggest problem in my entire life <laughs> oh my gosh wow <laughs> and let's let's hear and, and which, says, which you know like you know i obviously that's <laughs> That's, you have that's a pretty a good life. If that's your exactly. Problem. I was going to say, uh, no, I have other problems. Uh, I, I, we can, we can do the festivist thing another time. Uh, but, uh, I can't listen to anything when I work. You're like, Tim. which is really sad. You're which like, makes Tim. me unbelievably sad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Me too. Cause there's so many hours in a day that I would love to be yeah. listening to music that I can't. And you, and you talk about Phoebe Bridgers, you know, that you, you use the word literate with her. And that's such a perfect, that's such a perfect word. I mean, she's just got this very intellectual kind of approach uh, to her writing. And, uh, and I, I so dig that. I really do. That, that's, that's terrific. Uh, yeah. And her recent album with uh, Connor Oberst was excellent. And I have not, I have not uh, heard that. And, you know, uh, Connor's kind of a local guy, you know, he's a, he's sort of a local Minnesota dude. And uh, so he is well loved in this part of the world. And um, yeah, follow yes. him for a You'll while. You'll have to go out and get it. There you yeah, go. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, with well, that. Yeah. Alex, thank you. This has been very, very fascinating. And thank you for taking the time. We, we appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It was it was really fun. So we'll end the recording there. And uh, cool. God, thank you so much. This was really a lot of fun. And I seriously, I would like I would I would dig into like five topics that we talked about in future in future podcasts. You, I'm happy to come back. You'll right. be up for for doing another round sometime. Yeah. We'll, we'll yeah, give you some time off, but yeah, that, that would be <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. that would be great. I mean, just. Uh, the whole incentive component and looking at some of those pro social incentives and some of yeah. the, the research on that, that uh, again, we could probably have a whole episode on that. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I, I have a question for you. Um, I've been posed a, a, a question about providing uh, sort of the, the right marketing nudges and incentives for high wealth individuals. You know, we talk about, you know, just general policy stuff for just getting people into the financial world. When people are already deeply into the financial world and they're doing really well, uh, are, do you know of any research about sort of the, the profiles or the, the um, personality types or anything uh, that relate to what differentiate high wealth individuals from, from others? So I can give you the people to talk to. Um, So this is not really my active area of research, but Paul Smeets has a lot of work on this. Um, So he has, how do you spell it? Smeets, S-M-E-E-T-S. Okay. Um, And he's got a lot of work on the giving behavior of millionaires. He's got work on um, the 
it kind of like what sort of investment decisions uh, they make yeah. uh, and things like that. So he's got access to, from a bank in the Netherlands, I believe, uh, he's got access to a sample of these high wealth individuals and he's been, he's been writing some really fascinating papers about it. Uh, and uh, I believe Ashley Willens at uh, HBS is involved in some of that work as well. Terrific. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Kurt, anything else? No, no, this was fun. This was terrific. This so was terrific thank you. We always, always like uh, very, you, you know, articulate, well-spoken, <laughs> you know, and Tim goes into the music and I just, <laughs> you do not. Just, you got to go into the music. Yeah. Tim goes, you <laughs> know, but fun. you guys start talking to these, these people and I just sit here and I go, I don't know who that is. I don't know. I, I heard is. an interview with Phoebe uh, recently where she was talking about, um, she was talking about this 1949 uh, Gibson J200 that she's got. Mm, yeah. And she said, I love it because it's just absolutely dead. And this is, it is exactly how I think about those, those acoustic guitars is that they were just dead. They just had kind of a thud about them. And she said, I just love that. I absolutely adore that about this. And, and I was just, like, how the fuck can you think that? How can you, <laughs> you know, but then and I thought, well, wait a minute, this is how she writes. You know, this is, this is so part and parcel to the sound that she's creating. And it was, it was, it was inspiring. Actually. It was like, Oh, she's, she's got to figure it out. That's how Tom Waits is too. If you listen to a, to an interview with him, what's his favorite music An orchestra tuning up. Yeah. <laughs> like you listen to a Tom Waits album. That's exactly what that it sounds, sounds like. exactly. You're right. That is Tom Waits. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's perfect. I mean, he takes it and he's just like, he makes he make he makes beautiful music out of it, like Jockey Full of Bourbon. It sounds like this discordant thing, but then there's this beautiful melody connecting everything. And I I listen to that song, and it doesn't matter what I'm doing, where I am, I'm gonna get happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful. That's a beautiful song. Do you still play guitar? Uh I don't. So I played it for a long time, and I realized something. Like when I got to grad school, I was thinking all right, I'm going to keep playing guitar. I'm going to keep, you know, I'm going to start a new band in graduate school. But then, you know, what I realized is that doing research basically requires the same part of my brain as music, ah. uh, which is this kind of like putting different parts together and uh, seeing what sticks, what doesn't. Uh, and so kind of that hole that I needed to fill with music was filled with research. With research. Wow. And so I was going to satiate. Yeah, the, the the way that you describe that I think is really interesting from the component like putting pieces together and fitting things in and I never thought about research and music being the same but when you mention it like that it makes perfect sense. It's it's that component yeah. of that creation from just grabbing and insights and how do you pull things and how do you get them to work together. So that's You probably have already thought about well, that. Well, no, but that 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 confirms a lot of um, disparate feelings that I've had because I started this consulting business two years ago and mm -hmm. I was a prolific songwriter up until that point. And my songwriting in the last two years, I've only completed like four songs. Uh, and so it's like, it just yeah. took a dive, just a huge dive. It was the same way with me. Uh, I was I wrote songs all the time, and then right when I started grad school, I think I wrote one, and it wasn't good. <laughs> like even even by my very low standards. Yeah. So it's just like, uh, it wasn't. You're good. just done. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Alex, this was really a lot of fun. Uh, we will we will be back in touch. Okay. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Alex. Really Take care. Talk. See ya. 
Welcome to our grooving session where we talk about our conversation with Alex and anything else that comes into our claw-backed brains. Our claw-backed brains. Yeah, you know. Can, can we All claw- of that information that's in your brain, it's all just been clawed back and pulled out. <laughs> not a big loss. <laughs> <laughs> not a big loss for you. Nope, not for me. Nope, that was probably pretty easy to do because <laughs> there's not much there. Yeah, well, that goes for both of us here. All uh-huh. right. So in the intro, Tim, you talked about you trying to get these clawback incentives put in place with clients, just, but just to test it, just to, to see how it would work in the field. Yeah. But nobody was interested, right? No. Nobody would take you up on that. And yet it sounds like, you know, Alex was saying, Hey, there may be a shift in how people are thinking about this in particular talking about, you know, some of the, uh, elements from the community college teachers and some of those aspects. What do you think about that? Well, he might be right about this because we talked to Charlotte Blank from Merritt's when we were out at the Uber conference about uh, some field work that she did with an automotive client. Right. It's the it's the automotive uh, case study that that he brought up and and it was run by Merritt's um, and Charlotte had a lot of really cool information about it, but. They but it, tested it. And it didn't work. But it, it didn't it, work. Well, I, I shouldn't say it didn't work. The, the test was successful, but what? But the hypothesis that the clawback would drive higher sales wasn't what they got. The, the, the sales went down. Right. Now, again, you have to take this into consideration and all of the parameters in the environment that's in there, right? So sure. you have to it, look at that from that perspective. It was the clawback, I mean, the, the performance target that they had to hit was like 110% of quotas, yes. which is huge. It's just this component where, wow, you 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 get that um, off top of your head and you're going 110%. There's no way. I mean, that's a huge, huge bogey to hit. Yeah. Which in my understanding in the automotive field, 110% is for the rarefied air. That's it, it, not the norm. So right. setting the the bogey that high uh, made it really difficult for, well, for these guys to hit. And Alex talked about that, right? That threshold of achievement level being set so high can actually have a a, a blowback component on on any type of of incentive, which we know about. But in particular, what right. he's saying is that in these clawback times, because you immediately check out, and I think there's something about that. If you think about um, you know, if it's a gain component and you're getting to the 110%, but you don't reach it, well, that's not a big that's not a big blow to myself component, right? I'm not nothing's being taken away from me. All of these right. different things, I just didn't achieve it. There's that element of if you have this money already in hand and now you don't achieve it and it gets clawed back. There's also there's the loss aversion that that pain that you feel from the money being taken back. But I think there's also this element of saying hey, I, am, I didn't achieve this. It was my fault. But if you actually don't ever really participate in the program, go 110% is just way too much. There's no way I'll ever make it. When they claw that money back, yeah, the money is gone, but you never really had that money. You were right? never invested in it. You were it never invested in that money. No. It was never this element about self. And so I think there's a lot of component that you think about that threshold being so high that it actually dissuades people from from participating. There's another aspect that I thought was really interesting. If, if we, you know, agree, we all agree that loss aversion is a powerful, powerful motivator for human uh, behavior. And if, if it is this strong, then, uh, this, and, and Sally Sadoff pointed to this in her teacher paper uh, on the, the um, community college teachers, uh, cheating 
you know, the, the risk of cheating could be great for those that start to get close to the number but aren't quite there, you know, this could, the, the, this fear this of loss aversion could be so great that it, it that it might stimulate, um, it, that it might stimulate some unnecessary cheating. Yeah, there's an ethical component when you think about that. So right. you got to get that. I do have an experience, unlike you, I had an experience that, where yeah, right, we used, a, it, where a client did. Now, this was not necessarily your normal incentive. This was actually in a safety program. And so James Brewer, who was on our on our podcast many, many eons ago, one of our first guests, yes. um, we ran this. And so we were looking at improving the safety of their fleet drivers. And one of the things that we had put in place was, uh, as well as some, some technology and some other factors and some communication components in there, we built in this, this basically loss aversion piece where we gave all the drivers uh, XM radio. At least all the drivers that were under a certain threshold, right? So we gave we gave them all, and we said you can have that for free. They don't have to pay for it. It's it's a free kind of gift for for all you drivers, uh, unless you hit what they call these driver care points. If you had five or more driver care points, and driver care points were calculated be if you got speeding tickets, other kind of, you know, if you got in an accident, you got so many X points and all these various different things. So if you got, you know, five or more, then the XM radio got turned off and uh-huh. you no longer had it. Um, and what was really interesting, and I just talked with James about this, is that there was at the beginning of this, before they put this stuff in place, there was on average about 160, 180 or so people that had five or more of these points. They'd had these points in for a long time. There was no punishment or no anything else that went along with that, but they had, they had these components in there. Within a year, he said that that... Within a year of, of, of instituting of this instituting clawback. clawback yeah. He said that went down to about 40 so it had averaged about wow. 160 people with five or more, and now it was at 40. And what he said is, you know, traditionally there had always been people would come on and they would go off, you know, after a certain amount of time, that speeding ticket would fall off those points, and so then they wouldn't get, you know. But other people would just revolve right back on and various different things. And what he said is now is those people fell off, but there weren't those people revolving back on. And so, no, it's not necessarily all about that component. There was, uh, as we said, we were many you, old, yeah. other factors that were going into this. but And you didn't have a control group. So this really wasn't a random control test. It wasn't a random control test. But it's but a it powerful was, observation. But it was a use of a, of a clawback and kind of a loss aversion perspective. And that was, that was the design. Now, James is really big into you know, working and using behavioral science to yes. drive this motivation. He's a, he's a convert, you know, we, we've, we've talked him into it. <laughs> um, but he, he was very purposeful in looking at this and trying to design this from that perspective. So what you and James did in large part um, worked because of the context of his company and the culture. Uh, so the big takeaway for me is that context matters, right? We've talked about this a bunch and that improving the application of behavioral science really requires testing in a variety of different contexts. Right. So with that, we want to thank you for hanging out with us and listening to our discussion with Alex Emus. Also, we're grateful for all the very kind comments you've shared with us on LinkedIn and Twitter recently. Um, And we want to urge you to take 73 seconds to write a quick review in your favorite podcatcher. 
And I just want to leave you with this question. Why do you think you do what you do? Let's be in touch. Thank you.